Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're going to be talking about vaginal birth after cesarean, or VBAC, and more specifically home VBACs, with none other than the woman who coined the term, Nancy Weiner. Nancy's got story after birth story to debunk the myth that once a cesarean, always a cesarean, along with suggestions on how to avoid cesareans in general. This episode is going to be a little different from the others in that it will be in two sections. The thing is, after I spoke to Nancy, I felt there were a few important topics we didn't get to. Basically, I had more questions that kept running through my head, so I called her back and she graciously agreed to do a second recording to answer them. So here it is. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mamas and mamas-to-be. I want to thank you once again for all the love you're giving the show and send a quick reminder to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so we can get it in front of more mamas. If you want to go the extra mile, leave a review. I will be forever grateful. All right, today I'm thrilled to have Nancy Weiner here to talk about VBACs because I'm pretty sure she's been assisting assisting with them for longer than anybody else. Nancy is a midwife who graduated with honors from her midwifery programs and trained in a variety of settings, including birth centers and midwifery schools in the United States, Canada, the border of Mexico, and Jamaica. She co-founded the first cesarean prevention organization in the world and was instrumental in the formation of the cesarean prevention movement. In 2011, Nancy was selected as one of Mothering Magazine's Living Treasures. She's an internationally known and sought-after childbirth speaker that trains student midwives and teaches a variety of workshops, including grieving and healing after a disappointing, upsetting, or traumatic, traumatic birth experience and blissborn childbirth classes. In respect to vaginal birth after cesareans, Nancy coined the term VBAC and has written two books on cesarean prevention. Silent Knife won an award for the best book in the field of health and medicine by the American Library Association the year it was written. Nancy loves what she does, feels privileged to attend births, and since the beginning of her training has been present at over 1,800 births. Nancy, welcome. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Adriana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy you're here. So 1,800 births, that's that's a big number. You know, sometimes I'm lying in bed at night and I'm thinking, is it really 1,800 births? Because that blows me out of the water. And I start counting and I think, well, gee, I was at 50 births with this particular midwife and 250 births with that particular midwife. And then I went to Jamaica and I was at over 200 births. So as I count them up, it really is over 1,800 births. I just can't even believe it. And I feel so blessed. I've learned so much. And I still have so much to learn. I was with a midwife from the West Coast a couple weeks ago, and she's been to over 4,000 births. So I feel in respect to her, just like a little baby. It's so incredible incredible. that with birth, we just keep learning and learning. And like the more we know, the more we become in awe of it still. That is absolutely so true. And every woman teaches me something new and something different. We're really excited because in November, there was a woman from China 
who flew to the United States. I picked her up at the airport. She was nine months pregnant, Adriana, and she flew here because she couldn't find anybody in the entire country of China who would agree to be with her after having had four previous cesareans. She's actually not Chinese. She's actually Hungarian. So she went to Hungary to see whether or not, excuse me, she's from Uzbekistan. She went to her native country. And then she went to her husband's uh, country of origin, which was Hungary, and couldn't find anybody who would agree to be with her. So she flew to Boston. And we found her a wonderful place to stay with a former student midwife of mine. And I called in another midwife from the West Coast because three days after she arrived, the baby turned breech. So I thought it would be really good to have another really experienced midwife. She had a five-hour labor and a seven-and-a-half-pound baby, and she's transformed. And it was such a victory for her, but such a shame that she had to go through all of those years of believing that her body didn't work and that there was something wrong with her. Absolutely. And the dedication to go through all those steps and all those hoops to actually get the care she needed to have the birth she wanted. That's exactly right. It shouldn't have to be that difficult. It really shouldn't have to be. But for many women, it is. And I end up having quite a few people who come to Boston to have their babies with me because they can't find the kind of care that they're looking for in their own area. I had a woman about two and a half years ago who drove from New Jersey about a five, five and a half hour drive in labor to the Boston area. She'd had three previous cesareans. She thought she'd be able to stay in her area. And because she went past her quote-unquote due date, and don't get me talking about how ridiculous most due dates are, Mm -hmm. I tell all of my mothers to add two and a half to three weeks on to their due date and just not even to think about it. Um, But she drove in labor with her husband, had a baby at the motel not too far from my house, and turned around the next morning and went home. And once again, she had never had labor before, and she had a five and a half or six hour labor. So... It's wonderful that they have the kind of births that they seek, but it is also such a shame that they have to travel so far and they can't find care providers in their area. Absolutely. And I love this story because it also, you know, right off the bat debunks a lot of myths of why well, I said it in the intro, but once a cesarean, always a cesarean. She had three and then was able to have a VBAC. Right. Most women are totally capable of having babies, even when the baby is much larger than the baby for whom they were sectioned. It's a combination of a wide variety of of things that have to take place. I tell my mothers, as one example, don't cross your legs ever. Don't sit tailor style. Sounds like a lot of don'ts. Don't recline. Either lie down or sit completely straight. But when the mother pays attention to her position during the pregnancy, then the baby can pay better attention to its position as well. I tell my mothers not to drink very much milk at all and not to eat soy. And, and you know, to nutrition is so important, Adriana. And most of the women who come to me who have been seeing traditional obstetricians and even a lot of the medical midwives, their appointments are 12 minutes or 6 minutes or 15 minutes and there's just no time to talk about nutrition which is the corner post for a really good, healthy uterus, a healthy umbilical cord, a healthy baby, a healthy labor. So we really have to pay much more attention to what women are eating, how they're sitting, what they're thinking, 
And uh, when we do, and then when they're surrounded by really loving, peaceful, calm, trusting midwives and care providers, um, oftentimes things go even better than they had expected. Mm, yeah, so that's... I want to break down all those things that you said and maybe add more in terms of how to prepare for a VBAC and what things are important because um, they have, you know, if you want a VBAC, it's not about the last minute dash. It's something that you need to start thinking even whenever you find out you're pregnant again, but maybe even before then. Well, that's true. However, you're making me laugh as I recall that there were four women who rang my doorbell and had their babies in my kitchen or my living room, three of whom I had never met before. They were VBACs, and they did make a last-minute dash because up until that point, they just figured they either had to have a cesarean or maybe it was best to be in the hospital, and then all of a sudden, the light bulb went off. And so at 11 o'clock at night, my doorbell rings, and I'm in my pajamas, and the dog is barking, <laughs> and they come in and have their babies. So these are women that I had never met before. Uh, one of them was 10 centimeters when she walked through the door. Wow. The other wow. one was about four or five. I don't always check, by the way. We can sometimes tell without even checking. Um, and I just wanted to go back and tell you just a little bit more about that woman who came from New Jersey and had her baby in a motel. A few weeks later, she came back to Boston to get the uh, birth certificate. <laughs> and when she went to the town hall where the motel was located and said, you know, she needed to get a birth certificate, and she said that she had this baby in the motel, they said, you can't do that. You just can't do that. And she said, well, we did. And they said, no, 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 there's no way that we can issue a birth certificate for a baby who was born in a motel. So there were weeks and weeks of negotiations and paperwork and all kinds of legal, you know, discussions. And I found it really almost comical and sad at the same time that, you know, women can have their babies by the side of the road and in taxi cabs and pretty much anywhere else. But for a woman and her husband to have found a really nice, clean room to have their baby and to have gone home the next day, paid their bill, and not to have been issued a birth certificate was just pretty incredibly disturbing on mm -hmm. one yeah. Well, we just want everything to fit in a nice little box. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Right. So you asked about preparing for VBAC, mm -hmm. and it depends on the woman. There are different ways that we prepare with different women, and at the same time, there are certain things that do need to be in order, and one of them, hopefully, is their nutrition, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. We do everything we can to inspire women and to motivate them, not to shame them by putting them on a scale and telling them that they've gained too much weight. In fact, many of my women don't even get on a scale at all unless they want to. But to really help to motivate them to eat fabulously well so that they'll have energy and their babies will be healthy. And uh, so that's certainly one of the things that uh, we hope will be put into place whenever possible. I have and that Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. I've heard before, before you move on, why the reason why um, you suggest that they don't drink milk or have very little milk. But I'd love it if you would share that with the listeners. Well, I know there will be people who will, you know, want to discuss this, and I'm more than happy to do that. Um, but over the years, I've taken a look to see, you know, what makes sense. And I remember years ago, and I think it was in Nan Kohler's book called Artemis Speaks, probably 35 years ago or so, where she began to talk about this. And then there was the opposite with Tom Brewer, who believed that women needed to drink actually a fair amount of milk. But what I have learned and what makes sense to me at this point is that we are the only mammals who drink 
another mammal's milk. So when you think about it, cow's milk really wasn't designed for human beings. It was designed for baby cows. Baby cows start at about 120 pounds, as far as I remember, and they have to stand up immediately and follow their mothers around the barnyard. And so they have to grow really strong bones very quickly. And when we drink milk, we have babies who think perhaps they're going to be little cows who have to follow us around the barnyard or around our houses immediately. And so they actually have a different bone structure. And I know people talk to me about the fact that they drink raw milk and whatever. And certainly if they're going to drink milk at all, it makes more sense to drink healthy raw milk from really healthy, good, you know, organic cows. But on the other hand, we're still not really supposed to drink another mammal's milk. So people say, what about goat's milk? Goats, I think, like cows, have more than one stomach, and they certainly digest milk differently than we do. And so I generally ask my mothers to drink very little milk, very do very little dairy and soy. And what we notice is that the babies seem to have heads that are easier to birth than the ones who drink a tremendous amount of milk. So that's kind of a quick way of, of, you know, answering your question. And not everybody agrees, but it's just what I generally think works best for that period of time. And the same thing with ice cream. Ice cream is something that I happen to love. (laughs) But um, it's much too much sugar, much too much fat all at once for the baby. So we tell people to stay away from sugar as best they can, from white flour, from processed foods, of course, and um, from caffeine, and um, and just to have a wonderful, healthy, nutritional, you know, organic diet whenever possible. And I'm so happy you're repeating all of this. Um, and I'm saying repeating because a few episodes of the, of the show, a few episodes back, I did a whole show on nutrition during pregnancy and we talked a lot about the importance of having a good nutrition um, for to avoid complications such as preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, all these things. And I like that you're bringing it around from a different point of view of to actually have babies whose bodies are easier to deliver. I think so. And the milk that we drink, I mean, our, our great-grandmothers may have drink, may have had milk from their cows on the farm, but the milk that we generally buy nowadays or is available to us is nothing like it doesn't even resemble the milk that they had on their own farms years ago. When you mention Adriana gestational diabetes, that's another thing that we talk about is all of the tests that are generally perpetrated upon American pregnant women. And most of the women who come to me do very little, if any, testing at all. And I will do every Everything I can to get them to refuse to do the gestational diabetes testing. Uh, the, the Lucola drink that they give or even the breakfasts that they recommend now that can be taken in place of that Lucola drink. I think it's the equivalent of 26 to 28 jelly beans in terms of the sugar. And I can't imagine any one of us that would take two jelly beans or five jelly beans and hand them to our little kids and say, here, this is okay for you to eat. The women get nauseous before they even finish the drinks or the breakfast. And so there's a lot of things that we do that just don't fit. Now, I do understand that I get the cream of the crop. 
that the women who come to me as a general rule are well-nourished, they're very motivated to have natural births, but still I think we need to take a look at all of the tests that we're doing and ask questions as to whether or not they're definitely important and necessary and safe and accurate and in most of the situations as I do my research none of them is any of that and so most of the women who come to me have very little testing if any at all and I should mention that includes ultrasounds don't get me started on the concerns that many people have about ultrasound Um, I was fortunate for my next book to be able to interview the man who is the chief research and design engineer for ultrasound machines. And he said, and I asked if I could quote him, and I will, in my book, and he said that he didn't want his own family members to have ultrasounds, especially in the first trimester, because they're pretty sure they're not 100% safe. And we don't know exactly what that means, but we need to be very careful. And he said something that I thought was very interesting. He said, you could expose a growing embryo, a fetus or embryo to baby to um, an ultrasound at 10 o'clock in the morning, and there might not be really any negative results um, from that. But if you took that same pregnancy and that same baby and at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that's when you decided to do the ultrasound, there might be some detrimental effect because the baby is developing so quickly at that time and you don't know what part of the baby is growing at the particular moment that you are exposing that little one. And um, I used to be a speech therapist, believe it or not, and I thought about what would happen if that baby was being sonicated and exposed when the three littlest bones in the body had to come together and fit just right, and there may be some reason why those three little bones don't just come together because of the movement of the fluid, because of the ultrasound. I mean, I could go on and on, but I just ask women to be cautious and not to have ultrasounds early in the pregnancy and also um, not to use the Doppler, which is what the device the uh, doctors and most medical midwives use on the woman early in the pregnancy to listen to the baby's heartbeat. Not that it's not exciting to hear the baby. It is exciting. But we need to be patient and we need to just let our babies grow undisturbed. Do you think that being the first trimester, the sort of the when they have to be more cautious and consider it if they're going to have any for the second trimester or third trimester or just really try to not have any at all? Well, um, I think in this day and age, it's difficult not to have any at all because there's always seems to be these quote unquote reasons why they need. And a lot of women in this generation, it's how they feel more relaxed that their baby is okay. They need this kind of confirmation, whereas, you know, in generations gone by, there was no confirming. I can't tell you the number of times ultrasounds have not been accurate. And by the way, there is a chapter in the book, there is a section of the book on why it is so incredibly important not to know the sex of the baby ahead of time. And I can imagine people just sort of, you know, gasping when they hear people say this, but there are a lot of really important reasons not to know the sex of the baby ahead of time. Now, I'm totally curious because I'm one of the type of people that need to know (laughs) that I find that birth is so uncertain already that, and I didn't want to keep calling my baby an it. 
a he or she, I, you know. Well, we shouldn't call our babies it. We should call them the little, the little potatoes, the little munchkins. We can come <laughs> up with all kinds of little bunny rabbits. We can come up with all kinds of things. And there are languages where there is a pronoun that refers to both male and female that's respectful, because I agree that to say it. And this would take a little bit longer than we have, but let me see what I can do to kind of laser it. Um, one of the things that we know is that people have a preference. Well, first of all, in order to get in order to know the sex of the baby, uh, there are a couple other ways to do this, but ultrasound is the way that is generally done. We all know that babies hate ultrasounds for very good reason. They move away from them. They're very active. And you can go to a website called Doppler Danger if you have any interest in taking a look at more of this. However, we know that most people have a preference. And so what happens is, I'm just going to use this as an example. Let's say the the father really wants a son. I mean, he really wants a baby boy. And he finds out that it's a baby girl. What happens is, number one, is that he does not engage with the baby the same way. The baby feels the disappointment. I just recently had a woman who has five daughters and she found out that her baby is another little girl and she said she cried for two days and she said you know she said I guess I'm glad that I found out because now my baby won't I'll I'll have the time she said to kind of you know adjust to this and then when the baby's born I'll be able to greet her and my thought was this baby felt your disappointment at a very crucial time in the growing time of the baby so if the baby is going to feel any disappointment at all I think it should be after the baby comes out and at that point you are so relieved that the labor is over and that the baby is fine and that this baby is healthy and in your arms that the disappointment is a lot less I think intense but in terms of this there are some articles that are being written now I've just had a chance to take a quick peek at one of them which talks about how we talk to babies when we know they're baby girls and how different it is when we talk to babies who are in utero when they're baby boys, and that it may actually influence who this baby is, the tone of voices that we use, etc. One person said, you know, I agree with you, Nancy. We're not supposed to open up our Christmas presents in August. We find out what that gift is on Christmas, and I feel like you should find out what your baby is on the day that the baby is born. Now, this is a very condensed, you know, discussion. Mm -hmm. And I know that it it sort of makes people uncomfortable. They want to know. They want to paint the baby's room. They want to tell everybody. But I want you to know that more and more of the women who come to me when we discuss this and the fathers who come, the partners who come as well, it begins to make sense to them and they no longer need to know the sex of their baby ahead of time. And I've got to say that, I have seen in the in the years that I've been a doula, a, a sort of, I guess, a, a switch, a change to more of my mama clients not wanting to know and having surprises. And I know, like you said, you know, the moms that are already seeking a doula are not a good representation necessarily of the whole general press, uh, population. But I have seen a tendency away from knowing, um, which makes sense with what you're saying. 
I hope so. I hope so. I wanted to go back to some of the things you asked earlier on about yes. preparing for a VBAC. Because um, as I say, there are different ways, different women, different couples prepare differently. Some women have to read everything that's out there and some women read nothing at all. And some women take um, the bliss born classes that Emily and I provide and some women say, I just need to sort of do something on my own. So there are a lot of different ways to get the VBAC that a couple would like to have. But one of the things is choosing the care provider very, very carefully. I always think to myself, we are mammals. And other mammals don't birth well, Adriana, if there are strangers in the room because that stranger might be a predator. And so they need to be familiar and that person needs to be calm and trusting and loving and smiling and um, welcoming. And so I think it's interesting that so many women choose a particular care provider and then spend the entire pregnancy just hoping that that will be the care provider who will show up at the birth because people are not on call and they have other people covering for them. So whenever possible, I think it makes sense to work with somebody who uh, you know is going to be at the birth most likely and that you meet the backup and that you have people that help you to feel really safe and comfortable so that the ancient brain doesn't kick in. And that's the part of the brain that says, wait a minute, we can't birth now because this is not safe and we want to protect the species. And as I uh, referred to before, women go to wait in waiting rooms. They don't necessarily get the care provider that uh, they're going to be seeing at their birth. They may have a care provider that never had a natural birth before, never had a baby before. There is something that is so soothing to most pregnant women when their care provider, somebody that they've gone, gotten to know and somebody that they've gotten to care about back and forth, looks in her eyes when she's in really active labor and says, you know, you are doing so well. This is going beautifully, and I know it's intense, but you're going to be holding your baby pretty soon, and I know what you're feeling, and I remember thinking the same thing. But when you have somebody who says, well, you're doing fine, this is so-and-so, and that person has never had a baby before, um, certainly there are exceptions to this rule. But I do think that we have to have a whole list of questions. What will you do, for example, if my water releases? And noticed I didn't use the term break because nothing is broken. But what happens if my water releases and I don't go into labor for a day or two or three or four? The longest I've ever waited was two and a half to three weeks with a woman whose water released and she didn't go into labor right away. We can Usually talk within 24 hours is what I'm saying. 24 hours, they have to be in the hospital and they have to be monitored and they have to be, um, you know, with somebody hovering above them and getting things going. Yes, that's true in most cases. In fact, 12 hours is generally when women are actually asked to leave birth centers and go into the hospital if they haven't had their baby in some areas. But there are some women who take longer than 24 hours, and the worst place, in my opinion, for them to be is perhaps in the hospital because hospitals are where sick people go. And so that's where there's a tremendous amount of infection, and you're confined to one room, and then the clock is ticking, and so there are some psychological elements 
elements that kick in. So we just wait and we give them a whole list of, we give the women a list of things that they can do and that they can't do. And uh, then we want them to stay in their own environment. But we oftentimes wait two, three, four, five days. And again, I know there are people who are listening to this who will, you know, just kind of cringe, but we've never had an infection as a result of this. And yet there are tremendous numbers of infection in the hospital. We don't do vaginal exams as a rule. Um, you know, we have the women drinking plenty of water. Um, mm-hmm. She doesn't have intercourse at that point, although I'm not sure that that would necessarily hurt. Um, she doesn't insert anything into her vagina. She doesn't take a bath. She, all of the precautions, but we just wait. And that always seems to prove to be the right thing to do because they go into labor when the hormones kind of kick in and they have their babies. And, and that totally makes sense to me. It yeah, I'm so glad <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. So choosing the care provider is extremely important. Learning relaxation techniques can certainly help. There are different ways to do that. Being, as I said, with the right people. We had one birth where there were when the baby was born, there were twenty-two people in the room. She invited her mother, her mother-in-law, her sisters who had all had C-sections, and she wanted them to see, you know, a normal delivery. And it was an absolutely beautiful birth. And then we have births that are very private. So it depends on the particular couple. There are some who choose water birth. There are some who don't. But um, we go through, we have we have hour-long appointments every time they come and sometimes longer. So we have time to get to know our moms and we have time to talk about the fears that they have. And some women are terrified of uterine rupture and some of them don't even think about uterine rupture. But what they're really afraid of is growing a baby that's too big to birth or what they're really afraid of is. And then there's a whole you know list of, of, of concerns. But we have the time which is so necessary to go over all of these things so that we get to know the clients really well and we can work much better with them as a result. Having said that, I told you before that there are women who have shown up on my doorstep (laughs) and what I say to them is, listen, we didn't have the luxury of getting to know each other, you know, for very long. So let's pretend we did. Let's just fall in love with each other in a healthy way and and have a baby. And uh, that's what happens. That's Obviously, again, I can see the how, the importance of that because fears will affect the birthing process and, and how oxytocin flows and how long it takes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And then also, we don't just stop with the labor because the labor takes X number of hours. However, we do talk about um, all of the other procedures too because they may have a VBAC, but what kind of a VBAC are they going to have? A VBAC with monitors wrapped around their bellies and IVs in their arm and bright lights and strangers and no food, or are they going to have a really relaxed VBAC where nobody cuts the umbilical cord for at least an hour after the baby's born, and that way the baby gets all of its blood and all of its stem cells. We don't put anything into the baby's eyes. We certainly don't inject vitamin K or hepatitis. So it isn't just the actual birth, although that's important, important, of course, but it's the entire pregnancy, the entire labor, the entire delivery, and the entire postpartum period that we want to be gentle and loving and respectful and joyful and empowering and confidence boosting and all of the other things that you can probably think of. So what would you say to moms who don't have that kind of care that can access that type of care that is so loving and, you know, with one hour um, appointments and whether they talk about 
what their fears are and and easing that up and and getting to know their providers and knowing their provider is going to be that person is going to be present for the delivery or for the birth of their child what can which kind of talks about lots of the moms out there what can they do differently to prepare for VBAC? Well, there are a number of things that they can do, but I always say don't settle for less because when you settle for less, you get less than you you know settled for. Mm-hmm. I think that's a quote that I read someplace. Um, and we need to remember that every baby has only one opportunity to be born. There are no second chances at this. One of the things that they can do is that they can do prenatal appointments over the telephone. There's a few of us, probably more than a few, who do prenatal appointments over the phone. They can take their own blood pressure. They can check their own urine. You know, there's things that they can do. There are things they can't do, but there are certainly things they can do. And then there are several midwives, VBAC midwives, who fly all over the world to attend VBACs. And so they could consider having a VBAC uh, midwife come to them. They consider traveling, which is what I did with my um, first VBAC. My second was a home birth in my own home. But certainly there are things that they can do. And sometimes I even go so far as to say this isn't true in all circumstances, But they're better off getting no prenatal care than getting the kind of prenatal care that most women get. And I just finished writing part of a chapter about that, sitting in a waiting room for anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and having their blood pressure taken, getting on a scale, um, having a needle poked into their arm, having the Doppler stuck on their belly. And that's it. That's the prenatal appointment. You're fine, Mrs. So-and-so. Go home and make make another appointment and go home. That, to me, is not good prenatal care at all. And so why get it, so to speak? So there are definitely options. And, um, and, uh, you know, that's something that we could talk about another time if you like to, or I could continue to I could continue talking about this for the next (laughs) Or you can give me some links or or we can add to the show notes of where um, listeners can get more information if they want to go deeper into that. Yeah, I mean, I live, and I think you may too, I live, breathe, sleep, you know, (laughs) birth. It's a a passion of mine to help women to have the kind of births that they, um, natural births, and not to be afraid of their own body's processes and to have babies arrive into the world without drugs and tubes and tools and chemicals and machines and whatever else. Um, Sheila Kitzinger once said many, many years ago, You can know a culture by the way the majority of women in that culture birth their baby. And if that's true, if we can know our culture by watching the majority of women in our culture, the majority of women birth their babies with drugs, they can't feel their bodies, they have strangers in the room, they're not allowed to eat, I could go on and on. And 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 then we wonder why we have a culture the way that it is. It begins at birth, at least a lot of it begins at birth. And how we mother begins then as well, obviously. And so we really need to keep doing what you're doing. And I'm so grateful to you. I've been around for a long time. Um, I feel like I'm 22, but I'm not. You look 22. And I thank you. (laughs) I was fishing for that. But I will tell you that, you know, my children are grown. And I thought by the time my kids were grown, birth in this culture would be so different because there were so many of us who were working um, toward this. Um, 
I could name names and I won't necessarily do that right now, but we were all so enthusiastic and so energetic. And we truly thought that because what we were saying made so much sense that everybody would get it. And there's so much fear and misinformation in this culture that very few people get it. And as a result, the vast majority of women have epidurals and drugs and they're terrified. They're just terrified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's so much fear, um, so, so much fear in how we give birth. We're, and we see it less, you know, we're exposed to it less. So there's that fear of the unknown on top of everything else that comes along with it. So, I have one woman, let me just tell you this. I have one yeah. woman who um, had a VBAC with me years ago. She waited five or six years to have her second baby because her cesarean was so traumatic. And and by the way, there are a lot of vaginal births in this culture that are very traumatic as well. But even so, she'd had a very traumatic C-section and she just waited and waited and she was terrified to have another baby. And as this baby's head was crowning, she looked at her partner and she said, can we do this again? <laughs> the response from her partner was, do you think we could have this baby first and then we'll talk about the next one but it was that enthusiasm and joy and and just delight that is what we're looking for for all of the women who are having this baby their baby this planet absolutely and and what you bring up is also the healing aspects of a v-back which is beyond the birth it's you know the birthing of a baby is one thing but also the trauma that a mom goes through having a, a, a cesarean when she wasn't expecting one and yes. then having to heal from that and getting that healing birth ultimately does really affect and change her core and how she mothers and, and our culture at the base of it. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that I don't love my cesarean baby as much as I love my other children. Of course, I do, of course. I do, I do. But it is true that um, it makes a difference how we birth our babies. It makes a difference in the mother hormonally, and it makes a difference in the baby as well. So I know we're running out of time, or well, time's getting close, but um, I wanted to ask you one last question, which was, so the big day comes, you know, labor kicks in. What are some things that can come up that, um, that the mom, the pregnant mom should be on the lookout for? I think the most important thing, as I think about it at this very moment, and it could change 10 seconds from now, is um, the position of the baby. When the baby is lined up properly, the mother will have um, a five-hour, seven-hour, nine-hour, or 10-hour birth. Labor was not designed to be 27 and 34 and 48 hours. And the reason we know that, the way we know that, is that other mammals are capable of taking care of their babies immediately. They have to be. And as mammals, we're supposed to be capable of taking care of our babies pretty well as soon as they're born. And when we have two-day labors and five-day labors and whatever, um, we're generally exhausted to the point of collapse and can't really take care of our babies. But when we pay attention to the position of the baby, so that means women are not supposed to be laboring for 12 and 18 and 24 hours with no progress. And when they are, it is most often, not always, but most often, the position of the baby. So rather than have the woman labor and labor and labor and labor with a baby that's malpositioned, we want to check the position early in the labor if there's any question and see what we can do to alter that so that she can birth more quickly. Mm -hmm. and, do you, and you do that through just palpating the belly? 
Well, that's one way, but also by the character of the labor. So I've written about this. I think it's on my website or one of my blogs. But um, And Valerie L. Halter was the midwife who initially trained so many of us to really pay attention to the position of the baby. On the top of the baby's head, Adriana, as you know, there are soft spots. And the mm-hmm. soft spot on the front of the baby's head is a very large diamond. And the soft spot on the very back of the baby's head is a small little triangle and then there are all of these connecting lines and so if we have any question about the labor or the character of the labor we can check inside if we need to and see where it's almost as if God or the goddess or spirit gave us directional signals so when we go in we expect to feel certain things, landmarks, and if we feel them where they're supposed to be, we know that most likely this mom is going to have her baby uh, within a relatively reasonable period of time. But if the baby's head is what one, one of the mid- Oh no, I think Skype did its Skype thing. Um, do we have you back, Nancy? I'm here. Ugh, so sorry about that. Okay. Technology, as you know, is unpredictable as well. But it's but it lets us do this, and you can be, you know, far from where I am, and we can talk, and we can make this happen. And I can be far from Massachusetts, which is where I live, where there's four feet of snow. I'm in Florida visiting my mother. It's the first vacation in 14 months, and I'm so glad not to be where all the snow is. Ugh, that sounds lovely. I wish I was in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> there's snow here where I am. Sure. So do you remember what you were saying? I don't remember exactly where you got cut off, but you were talking about baby's position. Yeah, it might have been about head position because I spend so much time paying attention to that because when the baby's head is lined up, as I said, and tucked nicely, then the babies generally come out in a reasonable or even a quick period of time. But when the mothers are laboring and laboring and laboring and laboring, it is oftentimes head position. And so we want to do what we can because the longer the mother labors, with the baby's head in the wrong position, the more likely the baby is going to become committed to the unfavorable position. And that's when a lot of women get into trouble, a lot of trouble. I don't think I've ever heard the phrase committed to the unfavorable position. Mm -hmm. That's what generally happens, yeah. No, it makes sense because you see it, that that baby kind of hangs out and it just stalls, like, you know, quote unquote stalls. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you do, no matter how you try to turn mom and go to, it comes to a point that you don't see progress. Right. So we do a lot of preventative work ahead of time so that our babies most often are lined up before the mother even goes into labor. And that can include, but it doesn't necessarily have to, acupuncture, chiropractic, a lot of different things. Um, Certain exercises that are good for the mom and baby and certain exercises that may create some issues, including, as I mentioned before, tailor sitting. So no crossing of the legs. Right. Keep that pelvis aligned. That's right. That's right. Nancy, thank you so much for being here today. This has been lovely. It's so lovely. Um, if if lis- listeners want to get in touch with you or <laughs> you don't have to give your address so that they show up at your at your front door. <laughs> but, that you would know, be okay. That would be okay as long as I'm home. <laughs> yeah, not now. Um, but yeah. if they want to get in contact with you or if they want to know more about what you're doing or find out about your books, what, where can they contact you? Well, I have a website, which is birthday, all one word, birthdaymidwifery.com. Um, my telephone number is 
449-2490. And my email is pregnancymidwife at gmail.com. I'm so glad my mother named me Nancy because then I could use that uh, email address, pregnancymidwife at gmail.com. I've always loved your email. It's the best. And thank you so much, Adriana. Thank you so much. This is so near and dear to my heart. And you are doing a tremendous job of educating and reaching people whom I will never get to meet. So I want to thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your vacation. Thank you. You too. (laughs) Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, mamas. So that was part one. Stay tuned for part two, which is right after I tell you that this episode of Birthful is brought to you by the first eight days of being a mom, a day-by-day manual on taking care of the new mom as well as her newborn. Get a 10% discount by going to thefirst8days.com slash birthful. That's with the number eight, thefirst8days.com slash birthful. Here's part two. Hi again, Nancy. Thanks for coming back to answer some more questions. I am more than delighted to be with you, Adriana. Yay. So let's jump right in. What kept going around in my head was um, something that does play a big part in moms choosing to have a BVAC, wherever that is. And it's the fear, the fear of, you know, how safe it is. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, I certainly can, especially since you bring me back to the time that I was pregnant with our second child and desperately did want wanted to have a normal delivery. I did not want to have a repeat cesarean section, but I had been told by 17 or 18 doctors that I would die and or my baby would die if either of us attempted a vaginal delivery. I did my research and I found out that that was absolutely untrue. In fact, in Europe, even in those days, and that was several decades ago, if a woman had had a previous cesarean section, she automatically had a normal delivery the next time around in most circumstances, even when the baby that she was birthing this time was significantly larger than the baby for whom she had been sectioned. And I think we may have discussed that at one point before. So I was terrified. And when I finally found one doctor after 17 who said, well, we'll give it a shot, I was delighted. And my husband at the time said, what do you mean? He's the only doctor you know, in this entire country who's willing to give this a shot. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe you know everybody else was right. So I was terrified terrified. I stayed up at night and I wondered, would I die? Would my baby die? But since that point, I have attended many, many vaginal births after cesareans on my own. And I have counseled and worked with and communicated with literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of women. And what I know is that what we think about is, is VBAC safe? Is VBAC safe? And then nobody questions are cesarean section safe, are cesarean section safe. And the truth of the matter is, is that you have to take a look at both sides of the coin. And C-sections are not, they're certainly safer than they were many years ago, but they are not as safe as they're cracked up to be. There is anesthesia-related problems, you know, beyond anything else, and then surgical problems and hemorrhage. And I could go on with a litany of problems with cesarean section. And so it's not a matter of sort of comparing, you know, the difficulties with feedback with nothing wrong with cesarean sections. There are risks just getting up in the morning, as I mentioned to you before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know is that the risk of VBAC is generally considered to be about 0.05%. 
So that's pretty small. It's about the same risk we are told as with the placenta previa. And people don't spend too much time worrying about previas or abruptions during their pregnancy. Occasionally they happen, and it's unfortunate when they do. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are 99.5% of situations that go well. And there are things that women can do to increase their chances for things going well. The next point that I'd like to make is that if a woman's incision has held up to the point of labor, chances are she has an incision that's going to have integrity and she's going to be fine. We've had women with one, two, three, four, and five cesareans who have had beautiful vaginal births at home. And if this incision holds up to the point of that labor, then, as I said just a moment ago, chances are it's going to be fine because the incisions that did separate or quote-unquote rupture years ago did so usually prior to the onset of labor, which is why they generally took so many women in for C-sections at 36, 37, and maybe 38 weeks. And then they would get premature babies because there was some discrepancy or they would get some kind of a problem. And so we know that if the woman goes into labor, chances are, without Pitocin, by the way, because we don't use Pitocin, things will work out pretty well. And people say to me, are you frightened when you're driving to a VBAC home birth? And I say, heck no, if I was the least bit concerned or frightened, I would have talked to this couple ahead of time and said I didn't think intuitively or for whatever particular reason we should be at home. But when I'm driving to a VBAC home birth, I am absolutely delighted, I'm relaxed, I'm calm, I'm really, really quite convinced that things are going to go well in almost all circumstances. So another thing I'd like to say is that um, I believe personally that most feedback women are safer at home because there aren't all of the interventions and interferences that can interfere with a normal labor and kind of cause that labor to go askew. And so I always tell women, I think um, you're better off personally at home from my personal experience. So if you want me to continue, I can continue to talk about this forever. For example, <laughs> you know, if you get a if you get a cut on your finger, um, even a pretty good sized slice on your finger, you know, you put a bandage on it. You may put a little bit of um, you know something on it to uh, clean it out, um, and you kind of baby it for a little while, and you take a look at it, and after a while, you say, "Oh, and you know what that." healing. That looks a lot better. And then a few weeks later, you look at it and you think, oh my goodness, it's almost completely healed. That was quite a cut, but it's healed. And then after a while, you even forget. You may have a little bit of a scar, but you don't really think about it anymore. You use your hands, you slice your carrots, you do what you need to do with your hand and with your fingers, and it's done. It's healed. Whoops. Did you hear that terrible sound? I did. I don't know what that I'm was. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, well, about I that. must. No, that was my fault. I pressed a button on my computer, so oh, okay. um, I'll go back. That's to okay. And I, okay. So what I wanted to say was that you know, after a while, you don't really spend too much time thinking about that. Even like with a broken leg, I have friends who have they broke their legs, they couldn't walk, they were on crutches, and then a year or two later, you know, they're out, you know, skiing and walking and running and doing all of the things that they used to do. Our bodies heal. And I feel the same way about the incisions. 
hopefully women will avoid having cesareans in the first place. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. won't have to be considering, you know, VBAC and, and scars and whatever. But in the event that there has been one, especially if her nutrition is good and she takes care of herself most of the time, the incisions heal perfectly well and we don't have all that much you know, to worry about. And one other thing to think about is that a uterus can rupture even without a previous cesarean. I mean, that's a terrible thing to think about. But when you consider the fact that there's been an increase in uterus rupture among women who have never even had cesarean sections, we really have to take a look at that as well. Because all of the things we do in terms of inducing labor and trying to force babies out of their mother's bodies before the hormones are ready, before the baby's ready, we use tremendous amounts of pitocin. And then we wonder why we get into trouble, question mark. So we need to sort of take a look at the entire story and stand back and... Do what we can to avoid C-sections in the first place because 90-some-odd percent of them, Adriana, are totally preventable. They're unnecessary. They could have had a natural or normal birth. Um, And even with the women who did really, in that case, need to have a cesarean, in which cases we are grateful for the skill and the expertise of the doctors and the staff the next time around, most of those situations don't reoccur. I got a call yesterday from, actually I got two calls yesterday, right in a row, from two women who live in um, different parts of the United States who both had cesareans for breech babies. One of them has a head down baby now, and she's quote unquote going for a VBAC, and the other one, this baby is breech as well. And we talked about whether or not it was safer for her to have a breech baby and maybe even a breech baby at home. And I can hear people, you know, gulping and swallowing as we talk about that. But uh, all over the world, women have breech babies, as I said, without having to be cut. So it's more the experience of people, like it's something that's not done. So the practitioners are not experienced with it here because it's kind of a lost art. And I think in Canada, starting to bring it back, they're bringing it um, in in medical school uh, for obese. They're starting to be trained for breach. Right, right. You know, one thing I always talk talk about also is language. And I find it interesting that everybody is concerned about uterine rupture. And I know a lot of times that when women go in for their appointment, there's a possibility of uterine rupture, uterine rupture, rupture, rupture. But then they go and they say, we're going to rupture your membranes. And nobody even thinks twice about that. (laughs) Right. The The language that we use. Another thing is that a lot of women call me and text me and email tell me about what they call, you know, the dead baby card. You know, mm-hmm. you, if one doctor said to a woman this week, listen, if you want to go to somebody else and have this V-back of yours, that's what he said, this V-back of yours, um, after two previous cesareans, by the way, he said, you be my guest. He said, but he said, um, I don't like holding dead babies in my arms. And so, you know, there's a lot of language that's used that is terrifying and uh, we have to take a look because the truth of the matter is, is that unfortunately, um, you know, babies die, you know, um, when the mothers have been sectioned and uh, that's just unfair and unnecessary. We do need to talk about all of the risks, but um, there's a way to talk about them, which gives women accurate information and doesn't make them terrified in a way that we talk them that makes them jump up on the uh, operating table and say, okay, 
cut me open. I just want my baby in my arms. Right. And that's the thing, the thing, because, you know, there are risks for everything um, at the hospital, at home, for different situations, for the interventions, for the not interventions. And even though the risks are small with 99.5% of, um, of, of safety for n- not rupture, the fact is that the if you were in that 0.5%, that can be so scary that it's hard to believe in that choice or, or make that choice when you have somebody telling you, oh, you're, I don't want to hold bo- dead babies. That's exactly right. I'm remembering a story where I brought somebody in. We don't transport too often, but I brought somebody in to um, the hospital because she was having a long labor with a baby who seemed to be in a very unfavorable position and we just felt as if this baby might be giving us a message that it would prefer to be born in the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, they were very busy and she labored for about another two or three hours, at which point they said, you absolutely have to have a cesarean. Um, You just have to have a C-section. This baby's not coming out. They started to get her ready for the C-section and then they had a an emergency cesarean, a more emergency, they said. And so we stayed in the room, and we had her get up and turn over, and we put her into the shower one more time. And as they were coming in to wheel her in, they said to do the C-section, her baby was crowning, her head, the baby's head was crowning. So that turned into a beautiful birth, and then she birthed her next baby at home. Ten pounds, two ounces, the next baby, by the way. Now, um, and you just mentioned transport. Have you had to transport and had seen or been part of a uterine rupture, quote-unquote? I have been once. I have been. We had a woman who uh, dilated actually rather quickly and then pushed for quite some time, and this baby just wasn't coming down. And we went to the hospital because we just felt as if it was probably the best. And the baby sounded fine. The mother was tired, but she was fine. When we got to the hospital, they determined that she had... They said a uterine rupture. They did a cesarean. We don't know if it was a rupture or a dehiscence. Um, She's okay. The baby's okay. We would have preferred something different. But, yes, that was the only time out of literally thousands and thousands and thousands of situations when um, I was involved with a woman um, whom we transported and who ended up with a cesarean for what they said was a uterine rupture. And when you see women for, they come to you for prenatal care at the beginning, is there, like within your criteria, is there a woman who's not a good candidate for a VBAC or something that you would say, hmm, this is better in the hospital? Yeah. Well, first of all, most of the women who come to me, as you can imagine, are pretty self-selected. The women who have had, you know, serious health issues in the past, whether it's been heart conditions or whatever, um, don't generally, I don't generally see them at my door. Um, So uh, I would say that with the vast majority of women who come to me, they are candidates for vaginal birth after cesarean. We make sure that they're uh, doing the very best they can to eat really well. We have them take either the hypnobirthing or the blissborn classes. We don't have them take classes at the hospital. We don't care if they grow really nice big babies as long as they don't have a lot of milk and dairy in their diet. Um, so I would have to say, Adriana, that most of the women who come to me, including the ones with two and three and four previous cesareans and big babies, as I just said, and um, they we give it a we give it a shot. And I'm telling you. Um, 
most of them, even the ones who were told they'd never have a baby vaginally, most of them do. And I thank you for sharing all these stories and for doing what you do, because so I think it's a combination. And I always, as a doula, I always say this, I can support you, I can help you, I can try to make you as more comfortable and share with you my, you know, the information I know and my knowledge. But at the end of the day, you're the one birthing the baby, you have to do the work. Um, And that speaks to what you're talking about, the moms being self-selective, because when they come to your doorstep, it's a type of mom that you know, has more belief or not more belief, but I don't know, has, is more determined to have a baby, I guess, or is, believes more in her body. I I don't want to not honor the moms that don't come to your door, but yeah, well, some of them come to my door because a friend pushed them or somebody else pushed them and they're terrified. And we work with the terror we don't have five-minute appointments or eight-minute appointments. We have hour to hour and a half or two-hour appointments where we address the fears. And it's amazing to see the transition that these women go through from being terrified and thinking they're just going to have a repeat cesarean to very boldly and with focus and determination birthing their babies. I wanted to tell you uh, a story about a woman who had had two previous cesareans and decided to have a home birth. Her husband wasn't on board for most of the time and then thought, well, if she wants it this much, much, you know, I'll do what I can. And to his credit, he came to a lot of the appointments and I think he began to feel a lot more, um, a lot safer and a lot more confident. Um, when she had her vaginal birth um, in uh, her dining room uh, with, in a pool, Uh, in a water pool, Um, her husband was so relieved and so excited that he jumped up really high and hit his head on the chandelier, and he had to go to the hospital and have a couple stitches. And at the time, it wasn't so funny, but in retrospect, we all laugh about the fact that he was the one who actually ended up going to the hospital to have surgery, and she was home nursing her baby very, very calmly and confidently. So, uh, and there are so many stories. So, if at any point down the road you just want to hear some absolutely fantastic stories about VBAC, you just let me know. We might have to like a special, you know, extra episodes of just stories with Nancy. <laughs> Right. I have I have so many wonderful stories. There was one two and a half year old who turned out to be her mother's doula at her VBAC birth because her husband was um, he was uh, I think in the Coast Guard and he was on a boat and it took him a lot longer to get back than they had anticipated and. Her daughter is saying to her, Mommy, Mommy, you're going to have a baby, and it's coming out your vagina. (laughs) So there's just so many lovely, lovely stories, and uh, I'm always happy to share them, just always. Oh, and I was in a um, dressing room uh, in a store in Boston years ago, and I overheard somebody talking in the next room about the fact that she was going in for her C-section on Tuesday, and I debated for a while about whether or not to say anything. After all, we're all just on shopping a shopping spree. And when the woman came out, I looked at her and I said, I just want you to know that you probably don't have to have that C-section. And I waited for her to you know, punch me in the stomach or you know, just look at me and roll her eyes. And she said, excuse me? And I told her you know, what I did. She called me that night. She and her husband came over the next morning. She canceled her C-section for the following Tuesday and had a vaginal delivery. 
Fantastic. Yeah. So <laughs> what things you don't know might happen if Nancy's shopping next to you. That's <laughs> You're talking exactly right. about your C-section. That's exactly right. Yeah, and it's taught me not to keep my mouth closed most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you yeah. already have, I always say you already have the no. You're already at a position of no. So asking, it's, you know, you might just have the no again, or there might be a, the possibility of a yes, of a change. Right, right. Adriana, I just want to say that I'm always aware as I'm walking through my day, and even as you and I are doing this podcast, of the many, excuse me, many women who are in the hospitals right now being cut when they might have, if they'd had different information, different support, whatever, might have been able to birth their babies. And so, again, I want to thank you. I get, sorry, a little bit emotional about this, but it really is my life's work to do whatever I can to prevent unnecessary cesareans because I know that a culture where most babies are born by cesarean is a very, very different culture than a culture where women are birthing their babies normally and naturally the way they're supposed to. Nancy, thank you so much for what you do and for being so generous with your knowledge and with basically your life and your passion. Um, this, Thank you also for following up. This has been great. And I can't wait for you to hear it once it's all up and, and ready going on the podcast. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And if I can be of any help or service to any of the women who are out there or to you, um, here I am. You know where I am. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adriana. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Mamas, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Stay in touch by following Birthful on Facebook or Twitter. Even better, become a part of the Birthful community by subscribing at birthful.com. You'll get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive goodies. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to Diane Cassidy about tongue and lip ties here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>